You're not a nameless statistic. You're not a number. You matter to God. And because you matter to God, you matter to us. You matter to me. And God has not forgotten you. Regardless of what your feelings may tell you in recent days, whether you've been up on the mountain and maybe not given a care, or if you've been down in the depths of the valley and wonder if God sees. He sees. He knows. He loves you. And this is all working for your good and his glory. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we are not subject to some removed deity that has no clue what's going on in this world or in our lives, God. We are thankful this morning that we have you, Jesus Christ, standing as our high priest that is touched, the Bible says, with the feelings of our infirmity. He not only knows and cares, but he empathizes on a level that only a creator can. Thank you, Lord, that you know our name. You know everything about us. You know our rising and falling. You know all of our hopes and dreams, all of the things that we said this week that blessed you and all of the things we said this week that we shouldn't have. You know, every thought we've ever had, every deed we've ever done, you know and still you love us and care for us, provide for us, send your precious Holy Spirit to convict us. This morning, God, I pray that we would be encouraged and reminded and maybe some recalibrated to your word, a foundational text to establish a biblical worldview with significant repercussions and ripples, God. We're reminded that life is important and it matters. In Jesus' name, amen. We live in a culture where everybody's opinion matters. That's the, that's the game of the day, right? Everybody's idea matters as long as they're inclusive and don't require a lot of asterisks and uh, caveats to make sure that you've included every possible potential people group that could be offended for now and all eternity, right? I don't know what you can say anymore, anywhere. Everybody claims that we want life to prosper. What we mean is we want our lives to prosper from a cultural perspective. We claim that we want love to be the language of the land, and we even sing along what the world needs now is love, sweet love. We also think that we want justice in our society as long as it's for somebody else and not for my sins. There's a real disconnect, though, when you begin to make exclusive Bible claims into that space. Here's a reality check that's borne out historically. It is not possible to foster a culture of life and a culture of generous-hearted, self-denying love without the exclusive claims of the Scripture. Our city, when I, when I wrote this statistic down, I wrote this down 
on Tuesday based on stats from Saturday. I woke up this morning with two alerts from the Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department to find that these stats are outdated. But as of Tuesday, we were up to 49 homicides in the city so far this year. 16 of those were young people between the ages of 4 and 24 years old. And there's an outcry. What will we do? What will we do? This is terrible. This is bad. And it is bad. Uh, Sinners do awful things. It's bad. It's not as bad as some cities, right? Is that our rubric now that we're like, well, we're not as bad as so-and-so. Is that, is that how you measure your life? Well, I, I might be rotten, but I'm not as rotten as this guy, right? No, that's not our standard. We would love for there to be zero homicides. We actually don't and can't get a count because of the way these organizations work of the tens and likely hundreds of babies that are led to the slaughter each week in Charlotte, North Carolina. Four abortion mills in our own city, killing babies for profit. As Christians, we affirm the dignity of every person and uphold the value of every life precisely because of our belief that humans are made in the image of God. God establishes this in his word firmly throughout the Old and the New Testament. We also believe that murder is wrong because it demonstrates a flagrant disregard for human life. For Christians, both justice and love of neighbor require us to stand firm in these beliefs. This morning, I'm going to take these handful of verses, and for most of you in the room, let's go there. Let's acknowledge this. This is deep. Probably not. Is it profound? Absolutely. For most of us, it's a reminder of a basic biblical worldview, just foundation. I don't know how else to say it. But I need to tell you that for the children in the room and for those who find themselves in the public institutions of education from high school and college, this may be earth-shattering because they are receiving in mass and ad nauseum messages that absolutely are seeking to undermine what I'm about to say. Here's the first thing I want to bring to your attention as we look at the text. Now, don't freak out. I'm going to move around the text a little bit for logic. That's the way my brain works. So I'm going to start with design before I get to some of these other things. So we're going to move around these verses, but it's all right here in the text. Number one, if you're taking notes this morning, just three headers this morning. Number one, God uniquely designed us. You're not just a mammal, a mouth breather, right? You're not, uh, some of us barely qualify above that, right? If, I, if you catch me on a Sunday afternoon, it's, it's not good, right? I'm saying, <laughs> right? But you're not just a mouth breather, breather taking up space. You were designed, God uniquely designed mankind in a way that he didn't do anything else. Look at verse 31 of Genesis 1. Just like the rest of his creation, let's acknowledge how we're similar. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Like the other days of creation, God said it was good when he designed mankind. He didn't go, oh no, look what what have I done here, right? He didn't catch God off guard. He didn't go like, what is this teeth? Let's get these things brushed. This is all, I don't know. He didn't, like, these feet are ugly. I don't know what went through that process, but I know this, it wasn't a mistake, and it was the crowning achievement of God's creation. We'll come back to that in a moment, but we were uniquely designed. 
We learn all throughout scriptures that we are unique in the scope of God's creation. We are not equal with the rest of the creative order. I know you know that, but I don't know if you flipped on the tube lately, or rather, does anybody do that anymore? If you pull up the device lately and seen what's on, but they've got animals operating at people levels, right? There are people treating animals better than they treat people in our culture. That's unnatural affection, the Bible calls in the New Testament. We're not equal with the rest of the creative order. God has given us a moral compass, an intellectual compass, a spiritual compass that the rest of creation does not possess. It doesn't give us the right to be brutal or cruel. You're going to see the word dominion and exercising rule over things. doesn't mean we show up and torch the place and go, <laughs> I'm in charge. We've all had bosses like that. It's not what I'm talking about. Never in ministry, of course. Um, but that's not what I'm talking about. But we rule with care and concern. I, I like the way that... Uh, this pastor put it from Texas, he wrote, humans wrestle with some things that no other created thing does. For example, if you're watching National Geographic Channel and they show that little baby antelope. Oh, look, come look, the baby antelope. How cute, it's eating grass. Oh, and then 30 seconds later, the lioness is ripping it into pieces, right? Now, I know some kids in the room are just getting interested in the sermon, this is awesome. You're kind of like, uh, oh, I can't watch. I can't do this. This is awful. And you keep looking. It's like NASCAR. It's a wreck. You don't want to look away. That's why you watch. And you're going, I can't, I can't do this. This is awful. Oh, I can't believe. He Guess who's not thinking any of those thoughts? The lion, right? The lion doesn't have a moral quandary later on in the day. Later that evening as she's licking the blood off of her paws, she's not going, you know, I just keep doing the same thing over and over again. I need help. She is driven by instinct alone. She doesn't sit and contemplate. She doesn't wonder what's going to happen in her future when she can't hunt anymore. She lives for the moment instinctively. That's all she does. She's magnificent, but she has no moral or spiritual compass. But people do. People lie awake in bed at night with regrets. People lie awake trying to wrestle with what is right and what's wrong. People, on the other hand, try to think whether we should do this or shouldn't do this. The animal kingdom does not wrestle with those things. People do. So all of creation is good. We're good with all of creation, but we're not like the rest of creation. As we look at further at the distinction, you're going to notice two things I want to bring attention to with other passages of Scripture. There is a theological and a biological uniqueness to us. Let's look at it theologically first. You don't need to flip there, but it's in the Old Testament if you want to, to make sure I didn't make this up and put it on the screen. But Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. The Bible tells us that God knows all about us before we were formed. The Lord says to the prophet Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, watch this, I consecrated you, that means separated you, set you apart, fancy word. I appointed you, I had a job already for you to do, I had a plan for your life as a prophet to the nations. Now just so you know, you don't get to claim every verse in the Bible. You don't get to stand up and say, here's my verse, right? I don't know that you're the prophet to the nations. I'm not sure it works that way. But this was Jeremiah's verse, but we do learn something distinct about humans. God knows us before our parents conceive us. 
Now, I don't want to go all quantum leap on you here, but that only applies to a few of us that had TBS several years ago. But uh, God exists outside of time. So he sees all these things happening as it's, okay, take, let, let your brain come back down to where we are, right? So he sees all this. He knows all this about us. When it comes to matters dominating the public debate as far as when does life matter, when does life begin, when does life actually begin, biblically speaking, just on this verse alone, you can make a case with strong evidence that God regards the child in the womb as human life. In addition to God's knowing us prior to us being formed, we were uniquely designed on a biological level. This awesome God that Genesis reveals to us that created the heavens and the earth and all the animals and all the plant life. He created all these things. He made everything that was made. This same God that upholds the universe by the word of his power formed mankind. He formed the womb. He sustains the universe and is at work in the development of every child in the womb. It's not just in Jeremiah, though. In Genesis 25, God explains to Isaac and Rebekah that the children fighting in her womb, children, were going to be two great nations, showing that God knew them and had a plan for them before they were delivered. Judges 13, Samson's parents are told that while he is still in the womb, that God is going to use him to deliver his people. Luke 1, Zacharias and Elizabeth are told that John, their son, will be the great prophet who will prepare the way for the Messiah. If you've got your Bibles and can turn there, turn to Psalm 139 with me for just a moment. Powerful passage. We're going to come back to Genesis 1, but hopefully you can find that one pretty easily. It's right at the front. Okay, Psalm 139. Look with me at verses 13 through 16. You know these verses. Some of you've memorized these verses. It's a fantastic text. Look at what the Bible says. David gives us one of the greatest expressions, one of the greatest cases for the fact that life matters to God. All life matters to God. Look at what he says. For you formed my inward parts, verse 13. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. There is enough theological and biological acknowledgement in that passage alone to make the case for the personhood of the child in the womb. It's not a stretch. Jim Hamilton writes this. These verses tell us that this God has a personal, comprehensive knowledge of people prior to their conception, that the formation of a human being in a mother's womb is the work of God and that God oversees the development of babies in the wombs of their mothers. And from these things, we gain the invaluable perspective on the beauty, here's the word, here's the beauty, on the beauty, I got ahead of myself, and sanctity, I made a word there, Hashtag beauty. I want to see that today. Beauty and sanctity of human life. These littlest ones are endowed with the dignity extended to all human beings. Why? Because they are made in God's image. That brings me, we're still in that first point of design. Don't worry, the other points won't take this long. We're still in that first point, but let me talk about the design being made in God's image. Look at, back at Genesis 1.26. I told you Keep your thumb there so you can flip back. 
We won't go back to Psalm 139, I promise. That's the biggest flip you'll make this morning. Genesis 1, 26, the Bible says, God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, the Bible never lumps people into the category of animals. That's something mankind has done recently. Instead, it separates the creation of people from all other beings and attributes the most privileged roles in creation. We are unique because we have been made in the image of God. Now, this thought's going to bleed into my next point, but I want to hang with design for just a moment. In verse 28 right there, we don't have it up there, Mark, it's fine, but in verse 28, it's obvious that God says, just like he said for the rest of creation, that he wants people to be fruitful and multiply. There are a couple of us families that may have a leg up. I got that. Believe me, I know. But we want to be fruitful and multiply. Why is that? Why is the image of God would he want us to be fruitful and multiply? Well, let's think about what an image is. It's a reflection of the one it represents. Uh, there was a comedian on uh, some talk show years ago I saw, and he made this funny statement. He said, you know, we, I have one picture of my great-great-grandfather. There's one picture of him, and it's, it's, the quality of it is so bad, you can't tell if it's a bad painting or, a, or a, a, a portrait on a really primitive camera, but it's one picture of him, and he looks mad, right? It looks like he posed for an hour after a hard day's work, and he's like, there's a picture of him when he was... Uh, a young man about to go into the service, he said, and then there's rumor that there's another picture, but we can't find it. He said, that's my great-granddad. When my great-grandkids look at pictures of, their grand, of me, they're going to be like, look, here's 700 pictures of Grandpa eating a hamburger. <laughs> right? We're obsessed with images, right? And now the little um, digital cameras that shoot out the Polaroid, the, the Fuji, the little, I forget the name of it, the Instamax cameras that'll give you that little... It's a craze. And kids today are like, oh, and we're like, yeah, that's how they all used to be. Yeah. It's the coolest thing. It's like 700, whatever it is. I don't know how much there are. But that's, it's a really cool thing to do. Why? An image is a reflection of the one it represents. To be made in the image and likeness of God is this. We are visible representatives of the invisible God. And it's God's will that the visible representatives of the invisible God make him known on the globe. Life matters to God. He shows us that by how he uniquely designed us, and we also see in the text, point two this morning, God uniquely develops humans. He develops us differently than he does every other part of his creation. I'm gonna reference verse 26 a couple times. It's an anchor text, and I'll put it on the screen more than once, but here it is again. God says, let us make man in our own image and our likeness, and then we saw the rest of that, let them have dominion. You go to verse 28 and he says he blessed them and he says be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion again. What is God saying? Here's a really quick summary skimming the rock across the surface. You ready? God made us as image bearers. God blessed us as image bearers. God commanded us to be fruitful as image bearers. And God's plan is for us to have dominion as image bearers. Why? Why? Because God wants the whole earth filled with his character. God wants the world to be filled with his glory like the waters cover the sea. So he made man and woman in his image and told them to be fruitful and multiply. We bear the image of God 
because we want to bear the image of what it represents. We believe that man is valuable because God is valuable. God receives glory when we reflect his image. Got it? At a fundamental level, foundational to our biblical worldview, God has revealed to us that he has uniquely designed and developed mankind for his purpose. You matter to God. The choices you make matter to God. You are not an accident. I don't care how you got here, the situation of your parents, of your conception, none of that matters more than life. God is not in the business of making mistakes. You need to turn down the soundtracks in your life that are telling you otherwise. Third point this morning, God has a unique desire for humans, a unique desire for us. If you go back to that text, here's what you'll see. We were created to enjoy God and his creation. It's, it's really remarkable. If you look at verses 29, God says, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree. I've given this to you. You'll have them for food. Genesis 2, 15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Uh, Newsflash, just side note here. Work was ordained before the curse. Sorry about that, guys. We were made for work. Don't be sorry, or work's not a drug, you know. You say, where are you going? Go to work, right? We were made for work. We glorify God when we work. Yeah, you don't work where I work. You are correct, sir. I can't do anything about that, but it doesn't change the fact that you have the opportunity to still be his image bearer while you're in that hard place. May I submit to you that God may have surgically put you in that hard place to be a light in the midst of great darkness. Just a thought. We'll see if he can put me somewhere else. I'll put a prayer and we'll see. God set us up to, like, it, think about the setup he gave us. These great beginnings that we have. But you know, everything that starts well doesn't always finish well, does it? It's worth mentioning here that God's intention was not that we would exploit creation recklessly. When I say dominion, I don't mean, again, that kind of thing. Rather, God's design for us was to be caretakers of the world. Some people refer to this as the cultural mandate, which God gave instruction to us to go out to discover and to develop what he has made. I talked about enjoying his creation and enjoying him. Think about this. The scripture tells us that Adam and Eve walked with God. They could, ready for this? Mind blow time, beyond quantum leap here, ready? They could hear God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. What? I know y'all been saved more than 10 minutes and you read, when you're reading through your daily reading, you hit that Genesis text, you're like, yeah, yeah, God made everything. Day six, oh, I got day six mixed up. It's actually this. And you want to get back to a verse about what you're going through in life. And you blow past that and, and God was walking and they heard God walking in the cool of the day and like, yeah, they're in trouble. Yeah, 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 that's coming, you know that. But they could hear God walking and the, come on. They, this is what we were made for, but, but, we know something happened that disjointed that. Let me touch one more thing we were made for before we get to the fall. Mankind was made to glorify God. Not just to enjoy him and his stuff, 
but actually to bring him glory. Again, if you look back at 26, and if you look through 28, look at it all together, here's what you see. God said, let us make man in our image, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created, or he created him, male and female, he created them. He tells us to be fruitful. He sets all of this up. When you read all of Genesis 1, when you read the creation account from Scripture, you know what you find? You find that the creation of humanity is God's crowning event in all of creation. But when you listen to culture, you find that humanity is a parasite on this earth consuming natural resources. Or in Thursday's headlines, you see the current nominee to lead the Bureau of Land Management for our government calling for population control to protect the environment, stating, and I quote, we must breed fewer consuming humans. This is the ideology permeating the zeitgeist of the day. This is what's being purported as education in our universities. This is the indoctrination of folks away from the biblical truth. I don't want to chase all the arguments down this morning. That's not what Sunday morning pulpit time is for. But can I say this? The best crafted arguments that they have are intellectually dishonest at best because you can't carry them all the way out to their logical conclusion and come to anything that's sustainable. Sorry. They make great headlines, though. They galvanize political movements, but they're basically from a broken worldview that cannot stand against the truth of God's word. God said he will be true and every man a liar. The most creative thing we can come up with to explain this all away, if it's outside of this, it won't stand. I don't care. You may have more degrees after your name than a thermometer. It doesn't make a hill of beans when it comes to standing against the Word of God. They consistently get it wrong. Think about it. The dire predictions they made in the 70s, some of you were alive for, of mass starvation. They said we wouldn't live to see the 90s. Didn't come true. I mean... We're producing more food today than we ever have, feeding more people on the planet than we ever thought we could. The pinnacle of creation is not the spacious skies or the amber waves of grain or the purple mountain majesty above the fruited plain. The high point of creation is not the vastness of the ocean waves regulated by our solar system or the shorelines that take our breath away. The pinnacle of creation is not little Fifi or Fufu at home either, although I know they have a chunk of your heart. Look around you today. No, seriously, that's not rhetorical. Look around you today. Online, I don't know what you're going to do, but look around you today. I, I know we don't look like much. Some of you do. But this is the much, according to God. The pinnacle of creation is humanity. We are made in God's image. We have life that is sacred. We are made to resemble our creator who has revealed himself through his precious word. We're made to resemble him in character and in speech and in love and in life and in actions and in deeds so that we might have relationships with one another that glorify him and worship him in spirit and in truth. Life matters to God. We are agents of God's rule on this earth. I don't have the scripture on the screen, but out somewhere in the margin of Genesis 1, take your pen and write out Psalm 8. Write that out somewhere in the margins. Here's what you'll find later when you're reading that and flip there. You'll, you'll see the psalmist marveling, saying, when I look at the heavens, 
the work of your fingers, and he's beholding the moon and the stars which he set in place, and then looks over probably like you did this morning in the pew and says, what is man that you're mindful of him? You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and yet you've crowned him with glory and honor. It'd be awesome today with that kind of beginning if everything stayed on course, but spoiler alert, hashtag, it didn't finish that way. We know the fall came, and it came hard. There's no category to really adequately express the tragedy of man's rebellion against God. We remain in the image of God, but we're more like, as one author puts it, grisly shadows of himself. Mankind had everything it needed. We had it made in the garden, so to speak, and people failed by their sin. First shot they had, first choice to make to deny self and glorify God, we chose self. We failed by our sin in chapter 3 of Genesis. We failed by our corruption in chapter 6. We failed by our rebelliousness to fulfill our responsibilities in chapter 11 of Genesis. Yet our merciful God, merciful God in his kindness, renewed the mandate with Noah after judgment fell and said, okay, be fruitful and multiply and sin came. And he renews it with Abraham. Be fruitful and multiply. I'm going to multiply your seed as the sands and, and sin came. He tells Israel, be fruitful and multiply. And if you obey me, I'm going to bless you more than you can stand. And yet they failed time and time and time again. And you, probably like me, have failed over and over and over and missed it. But God still loves you. And he still has a plan for your life. And you can still bring glory and honor to God. You ready for this? Here was the, the nuke. Here was the grenade against this. For God so loved the world in all of its failures that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus Christ as the second Adam fulfilled the God's image-bearing purposes and enables God's people to do the same. The Apostle Paul, describing Jesus, says he is the image of God. Wow. Jesus is the image of God that you and I were intended to be. As we are united with him by faith, God sees us as clothed in his righteousness. That's remarkable. We are conformed into his image because of his righteousness and holiness. Jesus lived a perfect life and suffered the penalty for our sins as the perfect God-man. He provided for us to be renewed in the image of God through faith in him. Today, we see God's original goal of spreading his righteousness and glory throughout the whole earth is being realized, watch this, as the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is proclaimed. And new life is springing up all over the globe. <laughs> the early church was spoken of as replicating, reproducing, and multiplying. God's desire for us is still the same. He wants us, the church, to be fruitful and multiply. Make disciples who make disciples. Grace Covenant, have you heard that somewhere before? Even though sin was introduced at the fall of man, we place our hope in God's promise 
of a restored humanity. Life matters so much to God that he sent his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But don't miss how this happens. Church family, hang with me for just a moment. At its most fundamental level, salvation is possible. Watch this. Because for unto us a child was born. A son was given. This means the whole story of redemption hinges on the birth of a baby. One of the most sinister attacks on biblical truth One of the most savage, brutal, unjust interruptions of God's work is the work of abortion. Think about it. As this glorious God's work is forming that child in the room, abortion circumvents the good work. In the place of new life, abortion introduces death. Make no mistake this morning, you didn't step into a church at the heart of South End Charlotte for a political message. This is not a political issue. That's a lie. This is a theological and biological issue. It's a gospel issue. Not just abortion, but the culture that embraces and now celebrates it. Pro-abortionists no longer have science on their side. They never really did, but now there's proof for it. When they try to claim that life doesn't matter until delivery, that's not even life until it's delivered. That's not even true. When Roe versus Wade was handed down in 1973, there were no 3D ultrasounds. We didn't have the ability to watch our babies smile at us in the womb or feel pain. With all of society's cries for justice, this mix of worldviews that has absolute autonomy, autonomy of the human being and, and, and this culture of death, they just, they're madness together. Let me just hasten to close with this one illustration. All 50 states in the United States, all 50 states in the U.S. have strict laws protecting animals from human beings. If you kill a puppy, you can go to jail. If you kill a baby, you can make a living. 38 states have fetal homicide laws, and at least 23 states have fetal homicide laws that apply to the earliest stages of pregnancy. Let me illustrate it this way. If a pregnant woman is on the way to an abortion mill to get an abortion, but is hit by a drunk driver while she's en route to that abortion, the drunk driver will be arrested and charged with homicide. But if she makes it to the abortion mill, the doctor can kill the baby for a profit. That's a seared conscience. That's madness. That's the type of argument that's no longer rooted in any kind of thoughtfulness or logical integrity. I've come this morning as a preacher of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to tell you in the midst of this culture of death and madness, your life matters. You matter to God and you matter to us. I've come to say that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ should be a place of refuge. We, we stand in the gap for the vulnerable and the voiceless. And I want to say another word here too, very carefully and very lovingly. We also are a place of refuge for those of you who maybe have had an abortion. There's no sin that outsizes the gospel. You can't sin hard enough to outrun the blood of Jesus. His grace is sufficient. And we're not going to shame you or judge you 
or hurt you or gossip about you or make fun of you or make light of you or in any way like that, we will love you. It's grace, covenant church. You ought to find a refuge in the house of God. There's hope and there's healing in Jesus. You know why? Because you matter to God and you matter to me and you matter to us. And because life matters to God, it matters. God is for you. He's uniquely designed you. He's uniquely developed you. He has unique desires for you to enjoy Him and glorify Him forever. So much so that He sent the Lord Jesus Christ to prove it. I'm gonna ask the musicians to come. You can remain seated for just a moment. Julia's gonna play for just a moment while the singers get in place. And I, I just want to ask you, like, what is God saying to you with a message like this, that life matters? Is there somebody that maybe your actions haven't conveyed to that person, friend, uh, that their life is, maybe doesn't matter as much as yours? I don't know what that's like for you. Can I say this? It's really easy for us as the church to take the bait of society and make this a political issue and get on a bandwagon about all these things and be like, hey, we're going to protest and do this and that, or we're going to stand... And, and sometimes we, we miss the gospel opportunity moment. You see, our pro-life conviction compels us to share the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel needs to reach our neighbors and the nations because their lives matter to God. Let's be about our Father's business, which conveys through the megaphone in the drowning noise of millions of voices trying to cloud it up. Life matters. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you so much for the clear message of Scripture that stands in contrast to what we hear so much today and the noise and clamor of this world. You care. You care about us. You love us so much that you sent your only Son to die on a cross for our sins, to be buried in a borrowed tomb outside the city and raised to life on the third day to present that blood as a sufficient sacrifice for all of humanity that would come and bow the knee and put their faith and trust in you. Lord, we have a tall order ahead of us. There's so many hurting people out there that need healing. There's so many folks who are marching toward death and don't even realize it, God. We want to stand for life. Help us to be those men and women and boys and girls who will stand in the gap and be a people of life. We ask these things in the name of your Son, the giver of life, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the church said, amen. Let's stand together and worship the Lord with singing.